everything I see around me is a potential source of inspiration for new future works. And when I'm done, one thing I like to start on something that had nothing to do with the previous project to keep it fresh. I think a, a reward when you've almost finished something is that then you finally can start on, you know, your new pet project. Welcome to the Creative Chats Podcast with Mike Brennan. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Creative Chats. It's the podcast for artist makers and content creators where we talk about creativity, the creative process, and story. I'm your host, Mike Brennan. You can connect with me over on Instagram. I'm at MikeBone. And you can check out some of my work, which is on my website, MikeBrennan.me. I'd also love to extend an invitation to you to join our free Facebook group called Daily Creative Habit. It's where all types of creatives are showing up to say, I want to be more consistent with my creativity and craft. And if you would like to be a part of that community, we would love to have you. Go to dailycreativehabit.com to sign up to be a part of that group. Also, you can sign up for the free Daily Creative Habit newsletter. This is a newsletter that comes twice a week right now. It comes Mondays and Fridays. The newsletter is packed with resources and inspiration and also daily prompts that are centered around creativity. And it doesn't matter if you're a visual artist, musician, content creator, what your creative expression is. These prompts are designed to get you thinking and engage with your own creativity and establish your own daily creative habit. Go to dailycreativehabit.com and subscribe today. Hey, on this week's episode, I have a conversation with Bjorn Scarab. And Bjorn is a sculptor and historian who's living in New York City, who's originally from Denmark. And we have a great conversation about how he came to be a sculptor and his love for history and how he combines the two. And like so many other stories of creative people that I've spoken to, there's this point at which in their journey, they have this moment where they're not satisfied with what is happening in their life, with their career track, with what creativity looks like. And they make a decision to go full tilt. And I love this conversation with Bjorn because we talk about his history in how he just came upon sculpting and his love for what he does now and how he has a love for history. And he's combined the two and just some of his journey of what it looked like to get to where he is today. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation that I have with Bjorn. He's a great guy uh, with great sensibilities and creativity. And uh, I just know that you're going to fall in love with his work as well. We mentioned his website at the end of our talk. So be sure to check that out. And uh, of course, if you're in the areas that he mentions where his sculptures actually are, I do highly encourage that you go check them out for yourself because there's nothing like seeing these sculptures out in the public and being able to interact with them. So without further ado, here is my creative chat with Bjorn Skarp. Well, Bjorn, welcome to the Creative Chats podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me here. Yes, I always love when I get to just have conversations with fellow artists. Um, and, you know, I don't I haven't had the opportunity to speak to too many people who are more in the three dimensional space, you know, sculpting and creating these incredible works that that um, honestly, like I just 
I had a, a slight uh, introduction to something that was like welding back when I was in art school. And I was like, wow, this is a whole other ball game. This is not drawing on paper and, you know, painting on canvas. Um, so I can certainly appreciate your work on, on, on that level. And just the, uh, from what I've seen of it, just conceptually even. So uh, I'm excited to just unpack your story today and talk a little bit about specifics of your work and your process. So again, thank you. Perfect. So why don't you tell us a little bit like about just where did you know that you were a creative person? Like, was there a certain point in your childhood maybe, or certain experience that you had that this kind of spoke to you and said, you know what, this is something that I need to pay attention to and, and keep showing up and keep, keep creating. Well, I lived in the Danish province. I had a lot of spare time, um, which I spent drawing. I didn't really care for a soccer or having a moped or whatever yeah. <laughs> we were into out there, the local townies. Um, so I started drawing when I was maybe three, four years old. I, and I did that almost on a daily basis way into my teenage years. And then around 10 or 12, I discovered sculpting, which I liked even more, uh, which I felt much more free, you know, doing instead of thinking, mm. uh, thinking perspective lines and so on. When you reach a certain level in, in drawing, you, you can construct things more freely in sculpture, I think. Um, and I know you talked about welding before. I still don't do any of that. <laughs> to be brutally honest. <laughs> I still sit and do all the clay work myself, but that's it. I don't do any of the bronze work. Um, I'm there when it happens. I decide on the patina and so on, but I'm not really a metal worker. Mm. And in that way, I'm not alone in the history of art because Donatello, uh, Rodin never carved a piece of marble. He had assistance to do that. Um, but they were very good with the clay and that's still my preferred material. And it's not different from what I used when I was like eight years old to sculpt an ashtray for my parents or something like that. It's the same mm. material. Um, total freedom to create whatever you want. It's very flexible. Right. Yeah. I love that. So what were the kind of things that you were drawn to um, as far as creating in, in themes when you were younger? I mean, was it I know you, you're you do a lot of, of animals and things, but like was that seeded back then where you were like looking around and inspired by either nature or animals or, you know, stories that had to do with animals? Actually, the first data drawing we have from me, and I really don't know if that's true because it's from 76 and I'm born, born in 73, is yeah. of three polar bears. But it's um, I, I suspect it was from a year after. I don't think I was drawing when I was three, but I certainly was when I was four. So, and and that was the first thing I drew. I was totally into polar bears for two or three years of my life, like very obsessed about certain things. Two or three mm. years of only polar bears, two or three years of only ancient Egypt, and so on and so forth for the next decade or so. <laughs> <laughs> Was it something that you just kind of stumbled upon and thought, this is really interesting. I want to kind of drill down on this or, or were, was there a story that was involved someplace there? Do you remember any, anything from that context? Well, in that one is, it was just a bear mother with her two bear cubs eating a seal. Uh, as far as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> is way, bef way before, uh, way before like the Coca-Cola polar bear thing. Right. <laughs> and, and not as cute at all. Yeah. Oh, very like dark and Nordic. Yeah. A lot of the stuff I made back then, <laughs> a little workman-esque. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's amazing. So, and then when you, you discovered clay and sculpting, um, what was that like as far as 
like I'm sure you you had a certain thought process that you would approach your drawings you know with and then trying to translate that to another expression if you will right I mean it's still a visual expression but it's different because you're you're using your hands differently and like you said there's a certain freedom that you discovered in there um was that something that was natural for you did you have to really think about okay this is how I would approach drawing and this is now how I'm going to shift and approach sculpture well, I don't know. I thought sculpture was, uh, it, it worked better for me. Uh, it was less like mathematical. I mean, certain <laughs> in, in the old Renaissance art academy, drawing and painting were like considered kind of mathematical disciplines, right? Foreshortenings mm -hmm. and perspective lines and all these things. Um, and with, with clay, you can just, you know, turn the whole thing upside down and, you know, work from different perspectives as much as you like. Um, like a, a drawn portrait, like the beautiful ones you have in your background, they either work or they don't. But in, right. in clay, they have to work from, you know, 25 different perspectives. They can look great when you look them straight into the eyes and then you, you know, rotate them a little bit and the face looks completely flat, for instance, if you don't know how much the face actually tends right. to uh, go forward. I know some people like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> they look great from one angle, but... <laughs> But yeah, I could totally see how you have to take into consideration so many more factors. Um, and it's probably more of an immersive type of process because um, having to think about all those aspects and look at it from different angles and um, thinking about form, not just like line or pattern and things like that. Um, was there then like this moment where you're like, okay, you're enjoying this as a kid, you're you've discovered now clay and you're like okay this is my lane this is the thing i want to want to do um did you decide like okay i'm going to pursue this as a career like right away or like what did that part of your journey look like no i had no idea that you could actually make a living doing this so it didn't occur to me until i don't know 15 years later or something like that I, i'm self-taught i've never gone to art school um but i did go to you know high school and college and I got a PhD and I even did some postdocs. Um, and then I decided maybe 12 years ago that enough of, you know, academia and commenting on other people's work. Now I want to do my own thing. Mm. Um, and then my sculptures took off about that time. So that was just a lucky coincidence. Hmm. That's amazing. So you ended up going more into academia. So was it, it was teaching and you said, um, commenting on other people's work. So what did that look like? And, and what made you think that was it well, like, this is close enough to art that you wanted to stay with that? Or was there an opportunity that arose? Like, talk about how that journey came about. Well, both me and my wife are actually Renaissance historians. We both have, you know, PhDs in 16th century European history. <laughs> That's how we met. And she's also doing something else now. She just, uh, you know, <laughs> released a, a, a historical fiction novel supervised by George Carroll Oates uh, a few days ago. Nice. Um, so um, I don't know. For me, it just never occurred that you could become an artist when I was until I was like maybe into my early thirties or something. <laughs> mm. um, so that's 15, 20 years ago, almost now. But I grew up in a home where my father was an archaeologist. Um, so instead of, you know, talking sports around the dinner table, we would always sit and, you know, geek about who knew most about a certain period and so on. Uh, 
to my father's sheer frustration, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) So boring to be around people like that. But um, so I I never doubted that I would be, you know, studying something in that line, history, old times. Um, Mm. But I then discovered you can also tell stories about, you know, here or then in another medium like sculpture. Yeah. So during that period at which you're in a different career, did you still do your own sculpture for like your own purposes for, you know, kind of just keeping up with your skill and your interest? Or was it something you kind of put on a shelf? No, I kept doing it throughout because I really loved it. It's still my favorite thing to do when I want to relax for a few days or a few weeks or a few months even. I love to have some never ending sculpture project. Um, And academically, I didn't feel I was wasting any time because um, I was listening to audiobooks throughout. So, and preferably, you know, never ending ones like Gibbon's Rise and Fall and the Fall and Decline of the Rome, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. You know, all these, you know, audiobooks that took hundreds of hours to get through, they were Mm. just perfect for the kind of work I was doing. And then I discovered the Amazon Kindle that even very esoteric history books could be read aloud for you. So when I was working on, you know, some very esoteric aspect of the Spanish Empire in the 16th century, I could actually hear a lot of books about that while I was, you know, uh, improving my sculpting skills. So it was kind of like a win-win. Highly recommend for practicing artists. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. So at this point at which you get to say, okay, you realize that either, well, the switch that came when you said, okay, I'm leaving academia and I'm going to pursue this, you know, sculpting, was that more of a frustration thing was it more of a like i feel like there's something more or like what was the the catalyst for you to then you know kind of cross over into the things that you're doing now well the the thought of you know teaching machiavelli for 30 years at some small college was (laughs) (laughs) a little frustrating and um and then I don't know, I I did when I was younger, I did very, you know, Nordic things, I would say. Um, so very a, a rather dark tradition that we have north of the Alps, you know, a lot of, you know, monsters and, you know, flayed corpses and all kinds of anatomical <laughs> studies and all kinds of things like that I did. And there was no interest for any of these things anywhere. So I decided to focus on another fascination I've always had with like more soft forms the old um, basically the old illustration tradition the golden age of illustration i've always loved that period and i thought i could do something similar in in sculpture you know these anthropomorphic animals and so on and i think in 2011 or something like that i did my first uh, dika inspired hippo ballerina and somehow that took off and then i never looked back and and i'm never going back to that all that dark stuff we used to do before. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So it's like you really listened to that prompting that was like, you know what, here's an interest that you have and there's a thread you want to pull on. And so you lean into that, you do this. And then with the hippo that became really popular, was that something that then unlocked a lot of other opportunities for you? Or like, how did it go from, okay, you're, you're working in one context and now you're shifting gears into doing your sculpture and you've kind of got this theme you're running with like for a lot of people when they're when they feel like they need to switch into something new right maybe they're working a day job and they're like 
this isn't really what I'm passionate about. This isn't what I love to do, but there's this other artistic expression that I want to lean into for my career. There's this transition that needs to happen where one thing kind of diminishes, the other thing kind of gets built up. And sometimes there's this overlap period where, you know, you're, you, you have to work at two things, almost like two jobs at once. Mm. Right. Um, did you have that experience or was it like, you know, you, you did your hippo and then that opened up a lot of opportunities and it was an immediate kind of rushing into this new, uh, expression in life. There was a lot of overlap. <clears throat> when I did my PhD in Florence, I would occasionally find myself so bored around these roundtable discussion about Habermas or whatever that I would, you know, flee to an art foundry outside the city where I'm still casting almost all my bronzes. Um, so there was 10 years of doing both. Um, and I was single most of the time. I didn't have any kids or wives or anything. So I think that's the only way I could, I could, you know, do that. I was just working um, constantly. Um, and then, then I made my wife in 2010. And then a year or two after I started making these happy hippos, <laughs> so <laughs> I gave up my, my, uh, my natural Scandinavian pessimism, which was reflected in many of my previous works. <laughs> I like that you, you, you call it that the natural <laughs> Scandinavian pessimist. Um, so is there then like a point at which you go, okay, I'm, I want to do this, but I need to have a better context of what this looks like. Right. Did you find, did you seek out people? who you knew were sculptors and who were making a living at this and thinking like, okay, can I learn from them? Can I, can I model maybe pardon the pun after a little bit of, of their journey experiences, or was it just kind of, let me get in there and figure it out because I don't really have uh, a context. I've always been terrible at selling myself or selling anything. Basically I sold lottery tickets when I was a boy scout and really, really hated it. It's the worst <laughs> experience of my life <laughs> knocking at people's doors. So um, I, I was happy and lucky that, you know, other people did that for me um, here and there, you know, someone saw a piece of mine and put it in a gallery or a public building and that led to another, another thing. And then I was lucky when I moved over here in also around 2011 that I had a, a catalog of a big recent exhibition I had had in, in in a big castle in Denmark that I showed to someone here who then recommended it to the one who's now my my US gallerist. So um, it, it just took off very quickly. Um, but I had also done a lot of work. <laughs> right, right. Yes, there's, there's the mm. overnight success, right? <laughs> That's mm. been years in the making. <laughs> mm. The 10,000 hour rules, I think mine are more like 50,000 because I was working <laughs> constantly weekends include. Um, yeah, so many, so many years since I was a kid, basically. Yeah, just dedication to your craft. Yeah. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about you, what happens when you get an idea for something and like walk us through the process <clears throat> that you go through where, you know, you're, you said you're, you're sculpting and then having somebody else cast, but you get this idea from that point, what do you do? Is it sketching? Is it, you know, like walk us through what that looks like. Okay. So I think it's about half and half the whole concept development of, of what I'm going to make. And then the mechanical part of actually sculpting it, it's about 50, 50. Um, one of the early works I did, um, 
which was still, you know, a little dark in Scandinavia, <laughs> was, uh, you know, the, the, the great empires of the last five centuries. I did them as, as, uh, as like decaying animals lying in like the dung heap of history. So you had the, the Spanish eagle in the bottom, you had the, uh, the French rooster lying on top of that, the German eagle, the, uh, the Soviet bear, Russian bear. And then, um, on top of that, the only one surviving was then the bald eagle of the U.S. sitting there, you know, somewhat comfortably <laughs> without <laughs> noticing the Chinese dragon sneaking up from behind. And um, and I, I th that took me, uh, I think, a few months to develop that concept. And then it took me maybe a month to, to sculpt the whole thing. Um, it's still one of my favorite pieces. Um, mm. I, I so, like that are somewhat a little bit rooted in in history and mm -hmm. contemporary affairs. So when you're actually doing this, or you're sketching out, okay, this is what this looks like, and then you're going to sit with your clay. Is I'm assuming you know these these are uh, at a certain scale that you do these at, and then like how does that if it's something really huge? Right. Like, how do you how does that go from something smaller that you may work on in clay and then become the bigger thing that's actually cast? Or is that not? The way I, I never do any preparatory drawings for these things, um, but I always spend maybe 50 percent of the time working on the heads of each of the characters I make. For me, it's like if the head is perfect, then, you know, there is a big chance, high chance that the sculpture will be as well. Um, so. Um, and and then you know you change the pose of the head on on the body you're building and so on um that's really uh, and and the hits i normally do at home entirely on my own and then the skull when 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 i when i construct the whole piece i go to the foundry in italy or new york and and have you know an armature uh, welded and build the rest of the the thing over that um, so no, I, I don't do preparatory drawings anymore. And and I tend to start everything from, from scratch with the heads. Mm. <clears throat> and, and these are smaller, correct? And then they're translated into the... Uh, uh, they're not necessarily that small. I mean, the, the Colossus that is now at the Grand Central Terminal, it's 16 feet tall. <clears throat> and I sculpted that head in my garage. Oh, wow. Here, over here in the US, in, in clay, in classical clay. Um, it was, you know, <laughs> a little of a bit of a nail biter when when they came to move it, and it could have, you know, turned into dust in like a split second. Yeah. Something had gone wrong, but but it was just very enjoyable to to sculpt something, you know, the size of a of a kitchen table or something like that. That big head, which you cannot really appreciate how big it is because now it's fifteen feet up in the air. Um, but it was right. huge. It was the size of myself, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I could see how that could take so many man hours. And, and I'm thinking also about like, you know, in terms of when I'm drawing something, if I'm drawing something on a small piece of paper versus a very large surface, there's a different approach to it. Um, and would you say that it's the same thing for sculpture where like, if you're working on something that large, it, just the, the sheer size of it and the sheer amount of material that you need to use and and the you know whereas a small stroke on a small surface thing kind of thing would have a bigger impact if you do that on a bigger 
it's it's almost not noticeable. Is it the same kind of thing for you as when you're when you're sculpting something that there's has to be grander gestures and bigger movements and 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 those kind of things? That's true. You you can get away with much less detail when you work on these uh, large uh, dimensions. But I tend to love details. So I, I whenever I sculpt, I don't know if the same when you draw or paint. I can't wait for you know the last week where I'm sitting there and doing you know wrinkles around the eyes and all these little things that make everything come alive. It's my yeah. favorite part. It's the whole point of doing this, basically. The rest yeah. is just you know, lumping clay on top of each other on top. And, but but to reach that point, so even even with a big head, I spent you know weeks doing little fine details around the the nostrils and the ears and the eyes, and so I, I love that. And uh, I maybe that's also has to do with my own North European background because it's something, for instance, Michelangelo blamed the uh, the Flemish painters for. He said, "You jump way too quickly into all the details up there in Northern Europe. You should <laughs> first make the whole, you know, the whole general form, and then you can do a little bit of detail in the end. But don't worry too much about that. But I I happen to love the whole detail part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite thing." Well, and that's where so much of the magic happens, right? It's the personality of the thing that you're doing and usually what really sets it apart and, and brings that extra uh, sparkle to something that really attracts somebody to look at it in the first place, you know? It could also lead to something being overworked, but um, I think I'll do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when somebody, like, I'm curious about the process here, right? So obviously, there may be things that you do because you feel like doing them, right? These are passion projects, if you will. There are things that are just of interest to you uh, that maybe aren't connected to a commission or something, right? Um, but by and large, when you're dealing with sculpture, because I would imagine it's not like, you know, again, paper or paintings where if I have a stack of them in the corner, they're not taking up that much room. So if they're not being sold or displayed someplace, it's not as big a deal. Sculpture, I can imagine you don't have a lot of space to have things hanging around and <laughs> accumulating, right? Um, so how much of what you do is born out of somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I want to commission you for this piece um, versus you just doing something because you have an idea that you want to follow? I don't have particularly happy memories with commissions. I don't know about you, but normally <laughs> people who are not, you know, that visually gifted have a hard time explaining exactly what they want and it ends up leaving everyone disappointed. Yes. So um, they go, I, I know it when I'll see it, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is not exactly what we had in mind. But, uh, right. So no, I, I do very few of those. Um, but, um, and I don't want to be a one trick pony either. So I don't mm -hmm. do only hippos, for instance. Right. Um, but uh, for, for every, commercial work like like the hippos I do um, I do something very esoteric as well every year otherwise I would get bored with the whole thing so um, so some years ago I spent maybe half a year doing uh, the battle of the frogs and the mice which is based on a Hellenistic fable from the time of Alexander the Great it's a satire of the Iliad where instead of Trojans fighting Greeks you have uh, frogs fighting mice it's called Vatrakomiomachia in ancient Greek. And I had a lot of fun with that, knowing fully well that that piece in an enormous relief, you know, 12 characters, something like that, fighting amongst themselves would probably never sell. It ended up doing that nonetheless. It took a while, but um, 
that that's that's really some of my favorite moments when when I can do these so-called Connemore projects, you would call it in in Danish, uh, and mm. and get away with it once in a while. I do at least one one of those a year. Um, yeah. So, is it a lot of? Um public work spaces that you're then dealing with as far as, you know, these are dedicated spaces for sculptures um, or like, how you know, I'm curious about the process of like, how do you find places to get your work into? Um, and then obviously you mentioned gallery before. I'm sure that relationship helps with a lot of things too, but like it, it, that, that was leading my question a little bit of like, you know, some of the commission stuff, even like where somebody may be um, looking for this work for, more of a public space. And so they're coming to you knowing your work and saying, Hey, we would love to have your piece in this place. Um, or like, what does that look like? How do you find those places and those connections? Um, well, I maybe I should have mentioned that already when I started college, I got a, a parallel career at the National Museum in Denmark doing uh, scientific illustrations. And I believe the last guy you had in will Bill Nelson. Yes. Um, yeah, Bill Nelson. Uh, yeah. Had, had a similar start in his career as well. So I would sit there for maybe 10 years next, besides my history studies uh, and to, you know, pay for the studies, I would do very, very detailed drawings of, you know, Bronx axes from the Bronx Age, you know, 30, 3,300 years ago and so on. And, you know, even uh, the corrosion, all these little things. I could easily spend a month or two on one drawing, which wow. was fantastic. Um, and I, I noticed that when you when you have that time horizon, you can do that with sculpture as well. You can really spend a lot of time perfecting what you're what you have in front of you. Um, and because of that, I I got you know a foothold in some of the Danish museums, and they started showing some of my sculptures. And eventually, I got in some galleries as well. Um, and yeah, public spaces here and there. Then my brilliant. Cavalier Gallery here in the US have yes. been very successful in finding all kinds of wonderful settings for, for my pieces. Yeah. So it's it's a lot, I think, uh, about relationships, right? Just building those relationships through these opportunities and nurturing those and um, it being, uh, it sounds like a little bit organic and strategic together because you're looking for opportunities, I'm sure, that are aligned with what feels right for you of, of where your work is going to be. Um, and then just pouring into those relationships, right? Um, keeping on top of it and, and seeing how can you serve those people and as they serve your work, right? It's a wonderful thing to have your pieces in in a public settings, I think. Um, I've had a lot of my works in like big Italian palace gardens, hotel gardens and so on that has you know had a great impact or public spaces here in New York City. I think I've had my pieces up in three or four different places here. Um, and perhaps maybe even better than having them inside a gallery where people tend to be a little bit shy about entering, you know, they're not ready to <laughs> spend a fortune. Um, but like public, public art is for everyone. It's so great to see how random people and random little kids and so on interact with these, these things out in the open. Yeah. yeah. Do you have uh, maybe a moment where you remember like observing people interact with your work in the public, you know, where maybe you're hanging back and kind of like, they don't know that you're the, the, you know, creator of this work and you just kind of get to see it through somebody else's eyes. I've been in Europe for, for a long time. So I got back 
a few weeks ago um, for the first time since like May or June. Um, and then I went out to see the the hippos. And it, yeah, like you said, it's very funny just to be, you know, a fly on the wall. Uh, nobody knows who the guy right. is who makes these things. I mean, you're not like a celebrity like that when you do sculpture or painting. <laughs> yeah. You can live like a kind of hidden life, which is very privileged. And, you know, just get the brutally honest reaction from your audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's always great when somebody's like, "Hey, you know, I could probably do better. I, you know, I would do this differently." Whatever. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and they have no clue. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, um, with some of the other things that that you've been doing, um, like talk about some some recent things that you're you're that are happening that maybe you want to let people uh, aware of, um, and where they might be able to see these things. Well, a few months before the plague hit the world, um, so three years ago, I started on a never-ending project that I knew would be never-ending, but it has actually concluded now. And it was like a grand circus, you know, in the style of the, you know, the 1890s, when that tradition maybe peaked, especially here in the US and also a little bit in Europe. Um, these larger-than-life, you know, uh, menageries of color and movement and you know this neo-baroque um, symphony of of you know maximalist effects uh, warm colors and fantastic uh, frames around these uh, circus posters and so on i've always loved that world i've always found it very very fascinating it's like the last maximalist tradition in western art i think i think if, if rubens had lived in the late 19th century he would have been a circus artist, someone who painted the posters and the sideshow banners and so on. It has that you know, Baroque feel to it. So I thought it could be fun to do like a, a really huge project with what ended up being 33 different characters that I've sculpted over the last wow. um, three years. And, um, and an enormous 1.5 ton steel base also, oh, wow. you know, the size of a room, <laughs> uh, fully decorated with, you know, circus banners that I've made up with some of all these animal characters. Uh, and I'm bringing that to Art Miami next month um, at the end of November. And I very much look forward to the reaction. So that, that's really been been a, a Connemora project, I would say. Yeah, I would imagine. I'm actually a little sad that it, the whole thing is over. I could easily add another 10 or 20 characters to the whole thing. Yeah, and I've been, yeah. you know, surrounded, surrounding myself with circus books and and posters and so on from that period, just to get, you know, the stuff. I even have some of it here in my in my room, like this. You oh know. wow, nice, yeah. Um, I yeah. Just get it, get in the proper mood. I, you yeah, know, you have to surround yourself around with yeah. I don't know if you do the same, but oh, uh, of course, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, you need that inspiration and that that. Um, to kind of see some examples to stir some even ideas and um you know nothing new under the sun right so you're always taking in input from other places and then filtering it through who you are your experiences your skill set all that stuff for sure um is there any thought of like crossing over into something else or maybe collaborating with somebody else where it's it's taking what you've done and it's another iteration of it you know like as you're talking about the the circus thing i'm 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 almost like imagining like what would that look like if it were somehow bringing in some kind of animation thing or oh, it, it inspired that. something you know what i mean like yeah. have there been thoughts of that 
I would love nothing more. I mean, since I was 10 years old, my you know dream was actually to be like a sculptor for Disney or Pixar or something like that. I, I couldn't think of anything more magical than to see your physical creations suddenly, you know, start goofing around and doing all yeah. kinds of impossible things. Um, yeah. Sculpture is a static art form, you know, they're frozen. Right. Um, but it would be a wonderful thing, absolutely, to um, to make them come alive at some point. I I, I have worked a little bit on on animation. Um, I did actually do a dance macabre, uh, maybe twenty years ago, with some animator friends in Denmark, which I think has has been seen by a million people on YouTube now. Um, mm. um, so it, I just didn't have you know the resources to finish it. I did two minutes out of the seven. Yeah. Is like the old Saint song song uh, takes, but it's one of these projects I would like to finish in, mm. in the coming years. Um, yeah, I'm totally into animation. It's it's a it's a great American art form that I find totally magical. I can still remember when I was a kid going into the movie theaters out in the Danish province and watching, you know, Pinocchio or the Jungle yeah. Books, being immersed in, you know, and another world like that for a few hours it was just fantastic yeah and it's interesting you know now i'm thinking about it, so many of the the films from disney and, and the characters it's it's a lot of the animals too right it's a lot of these um uh borrowing from folk tales and other stories and bringing it into a different you know for that time period you know modern translation of things and i see that even in your work of how you're taking these things these influences from history as you've described and saying i want to make this into something that has your style and your characters in it um, but there's a deeper level there if somebody's willing to go there and explore um, obviously some people are going to just take it at face value and say, oh, you know, it's a hippo, it's a frog, it's a whatever, you know, but there's so much more there in what you bring in your interests and in the love for history uh, and the storytelling. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of cool to be thinking about it in those terms. You know, I, I love seeing that. Well, thank you for, <laughs> for that. Um, I think Disney did a fantastic job in the, throughout the thirties, for instance, um, revitalizing what was maybe a little bit of a moribund tradition back then, mm -hmm. you know, the grim fairy tales. If you read the originals, right. In general, they're very, very dark. They're like yes. nightmarish, <laughs> but you took them and, you know, presented them to a new era. I've always compared, you know, Snow White. I think it's the American Sixteen Chapel. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that film it was the fir first full feature animated film is still the most beautiful one ever made. I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's a few years older than the second world war <laughs> it's incredible <laughs> yeah. i mean it is uh, this you know whatever happened in american uh, popular culture back then is just never ceases to to amaze me it's still it's still the best of what what is out there and it was made you know 80 85 years ago a lot of a lot of it it's really a fantastic thing yeah but i also yeah. love the generation that that uh, these people built on i love the uh, the golden age of of illustration like i mentioned before um i was so happy some years ago when i discovered that next to my foundry in florence uh, was the cemetery where howard Pyle is buried because mm. the father of american illustration i've always found him you know one of the greatest artists of the last two centuries i think he invented that whole magical world of pirates and you know arthurian legends and um 
and and everything that came after Wyatt and and so on. It, it was because because of him. Yeah, yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah, we're always building on somebody else. You know, standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us and seeing. You know, how can I honor them and yet bring what I do to the table too? And then hopefully. You know, we get some small way of inspiring somebody else who's going to come after us, you know, and then the cycle continues. Um, I'd love to ask you a question, and this doesn't necessarily have to stay within the confines of either sculpture or art, but maybe it's even just a life thing for you. Is there something that maybe you come back to again and again as far as maybe a piece of advice that someone gave you or something you experienced, read in a book, but something that you keep before you? to continue to inspire you and help you as you continue to move through the things you're working on? Well, I continue to stay curious about everything. I'm like intellectually promiscuous. I can't <laughs> get enough of you know, museums and weird old uh, books from the 19th century or you know, everything I see around me is a potential source of inspiration for new future works. And when I'm done, one thing I like to start on something that had nothing to do with the previous project mm. to keep it fresh. I think uh, a reward when you've almost finished something is that then you finally can start on, you know, your new pet project. Um, right. So, um, yeah. And that way you, you end up, you know, creating a lot of <laughs> things. Yeah. The, um, it's a lot of variety. Hmm. I love that. It's stay curious, right? Stay curious. And like I think, I think Miles Davis said that there's just no better feeling than waking up in the morning and, you know, get the chance to create something. It's, it's just the most fantastic feeling. I don't think anything in the world can compete with that almost. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Well, I would love for you to tell us where people can experience some of your sculptures um, and see some of your work. So, uh, there's specific places you can maybe cite if they're around the areas or even, even, you know, your website. Yes. So my website is uh, B O S my initials and then dash art.com. Uh, and there you can see some of the works of the last 10, 15 years. It's not totally updated, but uh, then I have, I have a handful of pieces here in New York city in front of Grand central terminal until the end of this year, I think they're standing there, including my very big house size people ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I have some pieces in, uh, in Palm beach and Nantucket here in the States and spread over galleries across the U S now. And, and I have a big exhibition in Florence also in the four seasons garden. And I'm also part of a sculpture park in my native land of Denmark. Uh, next to the house of Karen Blixen, North of Copenhagen. Nice. So lots of opportunities to get out there and see your work. No matter where somebody's listening from right now, <laughs> they need to find where's the nearest location and uh, and certainly visit your website, which I'll be sure to put that in the show notes so people can find that very easily and just follow along with you. Um, so well, I thank you so much for our time today. I, I've really enjoyed just hearing more about your story and getting to hear the the just the process and, you know, 
just see things through your eyes a little bit, you know, in this conversation. I know that as the listeners have been just tracking along with you, I'm sure there's things that they, they're going to take away and apply to their own journey, the things they're they're creating. And so uh, thanks for the inspiration and the stories. I really appreciate it. Great. It was very nice talking to you. Thanks for listening today. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It really helps this podcast be seen and heard by others.